All right, everybody. Exciting announcement. Years ago, I interviewed a gentleman named Joseph Sheehy. He started a company called Cured Nutrition, who we have partnered with. We partnered with them because I love him, I love his mission, and I love what Cured has created. So Cured has products that have been designed with the intention to support all aspects of the daily human experience, whether you are looking for clean natural energy, relief from your everyday discomforts or anxieties, or a reset button for your deep night's sleep, which on that note is one of my favorite products. They have a sleep bundle that I really, really love. Uh, They have nightcaps and Zen, which are great, great, great for sleep. So they have a bunch of different products. They have functional mushrooms, CBD products. Most of their products are CBD based. They have gut health products. They have some really, really incredible stuff. So head on over to curednutrition.com forward slash Mantox and you'll get 20% off all of their products. Again, it's curednutrition.com forward slash Mantox. And please go check them out. It goes a long way in supporting the show. We have been very, very intentional. I've been running this podcast for eight years, and we've been very intentional about who and when we bring on partners. And so if you've been tuning into the show for a brief amount of time or a long time, please go check them out. Again, cured, C-U-R-E-D, nutrition.com forward slash Mantox. All right, Miss Jillian Turecki, how you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. I'm very good. I was on your show. I feel like we're getting acquainted. Yes. We've had some conversations lately. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, and I think my audience is going to love this one because I feel like we have a a good jam, a good vibe ahead of us. So before we talk about all things relationship, marriage, dating, what the hell's happening with dating why we choose the people that we choose. Sometimes we choose the wrong people, you know, and then we can't let go of them. Before we talk about all of that, uh, we have to start with the big question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Oh boy. Even though I knew this question was coming, <laughs> I uh, there's so many defining moments. It's uh, It's tough. I mean, I would say probably the most impactful moment of like recent years in the last, you know, let's say 10 years of my life was my mom dying. Mm. And, uh, I was very close with my mom. I mean, we had, you know, there's the mother daughter stuff that, that, that happens. And, you know, we often would butt heads, but we were very close. And, um, I don't know if you've ever seen someone die but it's it's a when you do especially when it's someone you love it changes you forever and i i was in the room when my stepfather died who i loved very much but you know it's just not the same as mom and so yeah being in the room surrounded by my two other sisters and we were sleeping my mom had been in hospice for just a few days And my sisters and I were sleeping in the room with her, you know, like it's a weird thing. It's like, you're not really brushing your teeth. You're not really brushing your hair. You're just like in your clothes that you've been wearing for days. You've been like eating snacks for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner for three days. It's just a weird time. And we went to sleep and it was around seven in the morning that I just opened my eyes and I had been, you know, this... I don't know, 
people are so weird, but I had been doing this sort of research on like what happens when a person dies, like when she was dying, I just wanted to know like what to expect. And I think it was also like a way to, I know the, the human mind is fascinating. We will, survival is so built into us, right? So, and part of that survival mechanism that kicks in is a little bit of dissociation. And so I think that what happens is that you start to, you know, I was like, let me spend my time researching death as opposed to feeling my feelings, which is okay. You know, Mm. that's just sort of, that's the survival. You know, you can't feel all your feelings at once when it comes to something that traumatic, it actually would not be a good thing. And so I woke up at seven in the morning and I looked at my mom and I could just, I could just tell based on, you know, my intuition and some of the research that her breathing had gotten to the point where it was only a matter of minutes before she was gone. And so I woke up my sisters and we said goodbye. And yeah, I mean, I get emotional because it's, it's a very, very intense moment, but it's also, I don't know, oddly beautiful, but in that moment, you're just changed forever. And I've had a lot of defining moments in my life, but that's the first one that came to my mind. And so that moment, and I was, you know, my husband had just left a few months before that. And I was already sort of starting this, I was already on the trajectory that I am on now. I'd already sort of started. And it was like, as soon as that happened, it's almost like the rest of my life began the moment she passed away. So Hmm. that's the story. What's always interesting about this question or what has become more interesting for me is I've asked this question, because I mean, I've been doing this podcast for seven years and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in so many different walks of life. And more recently, what's been fascinating is that the quantity of people who respond to this question with a story about death, you know, Mm -hmm. a story about somebody's passing. And it wasn't like that in the beginning. You know, I think it's been interesting to ask this question for so long, because I think in some ways it almost gives insight into the, I don't know how else to say, but like the cultural trends of the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially within the therapeutic space and self-help and personal development, because you kind of see how people answer. And there's this more real, honest, transparent, earnest response that people are having. Like I had Richard Reeves on who wrote of Boys and Men, and he, for the very first time in any interview, he talked about um, a death in his family. And, you know, after we finished the interview, he said, I've never told that story. And I've been, you know, I've done hundreds of interviews. And then I interviewed a, a former male porn star and he talked about the death of his mom that sent him on a you know very different path and it's just been interesting to hear in a in a culture and a time when so many people like i had stephen jenkinson on and he talks about how we live in a death phobic culture you know and i think that's changing i think people are less afraid to talk about the real sort of soul carving that happens you know, psychological chiseling that happens when somebody close to us passes. And and when we're there, 
you know, when we're there to witness it. And so maybe, you know, I don't want to get into any of the details, but I do want to linger on it for a moment to understand how did being with your mom in the moment, in her final moment, how did that shift you and change you? Like, did it change your thoughts? Did it change the way you interact with people? Did it cause you to really question what it is that you want to pursue in life? Like, what changed about Jillian before and after? Yeah, um, well, I think in those moments, and you hear people talk about this all the time, you really get, and you're in that moment, it's like you almost see through the matrix where like, Everything that you've like focused on or worried about up until that moment is so incredibly meaningless. And literally that the only thing that matters is love. It really is the only thing that matters. And that in that moment, and I can only say this because, you know, there are people who have very complicated relationships with their parents and who don't like their parents or hate their parents. So I think that the experience of having their parent die for someone like that is different. But for me, it was like all the things that sort of like bugged me about mom, like, oh, she was kind of controlling and she, you know, she would sometimes like get really unregulated with her emotions and just like be a no, like whatever, all the things that like, I was like, oh, like mom, like I can't stand you like that. Even though I loved her, that all went away. That all really went away. And all that was left was love. And it's very, very eye opening in that moment because it's like when I do now get consumed with the shit that doesn't matter, it's like I almost, there are times where I force myself to meditate on death and on that moment so that I'm, so that I wake up again from the trance that is telling me that things that matter, that really don't matter, (laughs) matter, you know, like it wakes me up from the trance that those things don't matter, should say, and that that's not real. You know, most of the things that we worry about is um, a total, complete waste of energy. And so that really changed me. And then another thing that changed me was just, it's like, you're kind of ushered in, even though I was an adult when she passed, you really feel like an adult once mom goes and Mm. that she was such a tremendous source of security and certainty in my life and her being gone, you know, you feel sort of ungrounded and untethered, but then it forces you into a role to kind of mother yourself in ways that perhaps you just didn't do before. And that's what it did for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting as I hear you talk about that, you know, my mom is, I've talked about it on the show a little bit before, but you know, my mom is terminal and she has a stage four cancer and she's going through the, you know, the sort of on the ropes of going through chemo and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's been very interesting for me <clears throat> because it was complicated before because she is an addict. She was an addict. And so there was this sort of tumultuous, like, you know, don't know what's going to happen. Don't know how this is going to play out. But it's been interesting to kind of take a step back outside of myself, outside of her, outside of my relationship to her, 
and sort of take stock of how her impending death has changed her, has changed me, and has changed our relationship. And, you know, I, I think, uh, maybe I think more about death than most people, to be honest. And I don't think that I've actually talked about that a lot on my show, although it seems to be <laughs> thematic now. <laughs> you know, now it's, it's like the amount of times that I talk about death with people, it's like <laughs> getting higher and higher and higher. It's like really, uh, it's really interesting. My audience, I've always wondered, like, what does my audience think about how often death comes up in the conversations where it's like, you know, we're going to spend the rest of this conversation talking about relationships. But, you know, even even within relationships, there's, there, you know, we have deaths of our relationship, right? Where a relationship ends and this dynamic that we've had with people for six months or six years, all of a sudden is just gone. And so the routines and the familiarities and the, you know, how we're known, all of that is the type of death that we experience. And, you know, so I think, anyway, it's just, it's been interesting because as I've watched my, watched my mom go through this experience and watched how, death has really shaped her and changed her and almost like given her something meaningful that she hadn't been able to quite connect to before that, mm -hmm. you know, before the like, really, it's in my face. I know that it's coming. I know that I can't escape it. And I've been trying my best more and more lately to live with it present, you know, as much as I can bear you know, to just let this knowledge that I might not have much more time. I might have a day, I might have a week, I might have a year, a decade, or or five decades, but it's there and it's mm -hmm. coming. And the longer that I get into life, the less, you know, these are sort of like the golden years, right? Like I'm healthy. I'm in the best shape of my life. I have a beautiful family. I like this wonderful land. My memory is there. You know, I can go for a jog and make it through, even though my knees are a bit of a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> you know, it, all of that to say, I do think that within Western culture, we have dramatically under-indexed the potency. You know, everybody's looking to change and transform and elevate and evolve and all the sort of words that get tossed around in sp spiritual and personal development and self-help and, and, and therapy. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, nothing like death to bring some of those things knocking at your door and make them so it almost like forcefully brings it into our sphere. Yes. So I don't know if that resonates with you or if you just want to make a comment on that before we... Yeah, for sure. What I was going to say is that when we're confronted with our mortality, that will force the most, I mean, avoidant person, if you will, to reflect on you're forced into self-reflection. And I think that um, just witnessing people go through it, it's a deeply spiritual time. It's also a very depressing time. I think mm. that people, most people get very depressed in this culture when they're faced with their mortality. But I think that um, it's a cliche, but it just reminds you to live when you're living. It's like, it like pressurizes the system. You know, yeah. I, I've always thought that like death is like this this like pressurization of our psychological, emotional, and spiritual self that that can't help but sort of spotlight out in the areas of our life what's really meaningful Absolutely. and then spotlight out the parts of our life where we're just wasting our fucking time, right? Yeah. Where it's just like, this, yeah. doesn't, this shit doesn't matter. This argument doesn't matter. That breakdown doesn't matter. Like that garbage just doesn't fucking matter, no. you know? And 
And it really is the, the sort of like, it's almost like a cleaning agent, you know, for the mind and the soul and the heart, right? Where all of a sudden it's just like, oh, things are very clear. Yes. You know, and the blurriness is sort of gone. Absolutely. And honestly, what's left behind is love. Mm. And I think that, you know, I, I think that a lot of people also reflect on what they regret. And I think that uh, most people regret things that they haven't done rather than the things that they have done. And uh, yeah, I think that people, I think it reminds you that love is really the most important thing. On that note, and then I'm going to segue into relationships. I think it was, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who said, choose your regrets. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a very prominent atheist figure back in like the 90s and early 2000s. No, I'm surprised this- that I, I'm not. What's his name? Christopher Hitchens. I will have to pick He's, it up. And for, the, for the people that, that are out there, I feel like our modern time could use the hitch slap right mm-hmm. now. But <laughs> a he was a very, <laughs> yeah, he was a very interesting intellectual. But one of the things that he said was to choose your regrets, like live your life in a way where you actually are trying to make decisions where, because you're, you're always going to regret something, right? Yes. There's always going to be some kind of regret when you're choosing between people that you want to date or partners or jobs or career opportunities or 100%. travel. It's like, you know, the options are, are sort of endless in many ways. And so you, ch- you choose the life, the path that you want to walk where you are not only choosing the direction you want to go, but you're choosing the regrets that you're willing to live with. And mm-hmm. I, that framework has always stuck with me, you know, because I'm, I, I've thought a lot about that and we don't need to go into that. So I want to just switch into relationships. Talk to me a little bit just on this note of death. Um, most people are going to watch their partner struggle or grieve the loss of somebody. Mm. And I'm curious about your take on how we support our partner through the the deepest, hardest of times, through the grief of losing a parent or a friend, through the depression that hits, you yeah. know, through the the lostness. Like, what does it look like to just be a, a lighthouse for our partner when when they're lost? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a boyfriend years ago whose father died when we were together, and then you know my ex-husband was not there for me through the death of my mom. So, and and I think it's not just the death, it's the diagnosis, right? Like as soon as you hear that someone you love has a bad diagnosis, right? Some, a cancer diagnosis that can, that will likely kill them. You start to grieve that very moment. So the, so death actually really begins in that moment. And the way that you support someone is just by being really present with them, really tender with them, really compassionate. And to get over whatever bullshit discomfort you have about talking about hard shit, get over it. And just be there and say, if you want to talk, I'm here for you. If you want me to distract you, I'll distract you. But don't make it about you. Don't make it about you. And uh, that's really important. I think that, so that's for when your spouse or loved one is going through something traumatic, like the death of a loved one. You know, I have an episode on like how to help a partner who's depressed. You know, it's difficult because often, and we don't talk about this enough, but often people who are, if you're in a relationship with someone who's depressed, I have to remind that person to take care of themselves. 
And so that's number one. And also to understand, to encourage them to try to understand why their partner is depressed because people will experience a depression for many different reasons. And sometimes, a lot of times it has to do with a person not having anything to look forward to in life, feeling like they don't have any passion in their life, purpose in their life, meaning in their life. So I think that when you can know what's really ailing your partner, you can support them better. So I think knowing why, I think taking care of yourself is very important. And yeah, I mean, to go back to what happens when you have when your spouse or your partner's parent is dying, I'm not suggesting you ignore your life. Life must go on. But you got to really do your best if you're uncomfortable talking about it or whatever it's triggering you, like get over it. And that's, you know, probably not the politically correct advice, but you really do have to try to get over it and be there for your partner and just be a steady presence. That is really the gift. That's just really the gift. And, you know, and talk about it. Like I said, say, do you want me to distract you? Do you want to not talk about it? Do you just want a hug? And then, I don't know. It's, I think that what people lose sight of is that in a relationship, it really is the little things. It's the little things that matter the most. It's the little things that destroy a relationship. And it's the little things that make a relationship. So regardless of what your partner is going through or not, if you see that they're having just even a bad day, just like, I don't know, fixing that, you know, making some tea for them or giving them a random hug. If you are attuned to your partner, if you are attuned to their energy, you will notice when there's an energy shift and you don't have to always try to get them to talk about their energy shift. You just give them something that every human being wants, which is to be safe and touched and held and to be nurtured. Hmm. And I think that, you know, communication is not just what we say with our words. There's tons of nonverbal communication. And the more that you are attuned to your partner and what they're and what they need in a moment when they're down and you just do the little things here and there, that's what matters. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. And I wanted to say when you said get over it, I feel like more people just need to hear that. <laughs> you know, like sometimes it's just like get over yourself, like get yeah. over your shit, get over the stuff that you like, just put it to the side for a moment. And this isn't advocating for neglecting your own needs or anything like that. No. Or if you're There's a people pleaser, no. you know, because I hear it's so funny how whenever we like, whenever there's like very direct advice or, you know, sort of direct stuff. A lot of times people are like, well, what well, about, what about, what about but what about, yeah, the, the what, what about says like, oh, yeah. fucking yes, we get it. Yes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. like, There's nuance yeah, to everything. You are right. Yes. You are right. Yes. There's but no, nuance. I do, I do yeah. think that there's just this, there has to be more space for things to be relational and for people to operate in a relational way. I was doing an interview yesterday with a gentleman and we were talking about the, like the red pill came up, like the red pill movement. And mm -hmm. You know, I said one of my big issues with the red pill and some of the guys that are in there is that oftentimes it's not very relational. You know, it's actually not about you being in relationship with somebody. It's about you having some type of control or dominance or superiority to make the relationship function. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic 
you know, sure. that's, that's problematic. And anyway, that's a side tangent. Tell me a little bit about how you think in terms of how we as people choose partners, like what goes into that? Because so often, yeah, I get questions. I'm sure you get the questions from people of like, why did I choose this person? Or I'm in this relationship. And I remember getting a question just the other day, I did a Q and A and somebody said, my partner and I've been together for six years. Both of us know that this isn't the right relationship, but we can't leave each other. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, well, clearly you chose each other for a reason. So what do you think goes into how we choose partners, why we choose them? And, and then I think we should talk about like, why do we actually choose the wrong people Yeah, uh, if there is such a thing? Well, first, it's so interesting. You said that couple that says we've been together for six years and we know it's not right, but we can't leave each other. I'd be so curious to to know why they think it's not right. Because mm. a lot of people will say, well, it's not right. Well, maybe it is right. Maybe you just need to like, maybe you just don't have the proper help to make it better. But anyway, that was just a thought. So we choose people often until we are like v- become very aware from our from our subconscious, from our unconscious, you know, it's sometimes we will choose partners who, who remind our unconscious of a struggle from childhood, perhaps with a parent. And so our unconscious thinks this person, the unconscious recognizes that this person will present the exact same problem to them that they had in childhood. And our subconscious is saying, let this will be an opportunity to work it out. So I do think that there is, you know, there's this theory that the unconscious mind is always looking to sort of resolve issues from our childhood. And we do that in our adult romantic relationships. And that's when we, that's when we marry our dad or we marry our mom or we partner with our mom or our dad. And, you know, sometimes those relationships are absolutely doomed and sometimes they're not, you know, with the right help, with the right help. And if there's other things that are right about it, and you've got two people who are willing to really kind of work through it, you can, you can work through it. Sometimes, you know, we, we choose partners also based on our conditioning from Hollywood and from literature, the young girl, for example, who has an idea of what her Prince Charming or her Princess Charming looks like, you know, and that's been sort of imprinted in her brain since she was a child. And so she meets someone who is familiar in that way, who who has on the surface some of the qualities, maybe it's how they look, maybe it's certain other things that reminds them of the archetype that they had always imagined and fantasized themselves being with. Then, you know, we choose partners based on, and this is also childhood stuff. It's like our need to fix and to heal. And you'll see, you know, men choose partners based on needing to feel like the hero and that they can choose a partner who has a really big problem and they can rescue them. And women do it too. They, they fall for people who have a really big problem. So I can be the reason why this person changes. Hmm. And that's because true emotional intimacy demands that there isn't someone better than the other. But when you get into these dynamics where you're rescuing someone, healing them, therapizing them, being the hero being the inspiration for their change, all sort of part of the same iteration. 
you are essentially better than them. That's, that's what you're saying. It's like, I am the guru, you are the victim, and I am going to be the reason for, I'm going to bring light into your life. I'm going to awaken you. And that feeds the ego. And it also makes it so that there isn't any true emotional intimacy, because as long as that dynamic is happening, you, you're not equal, so to speak, for lack of a better world, word, from, from a state of consciousness perspective. And so people have all sorts of patterns. I was just going to say, like on that note, like I usually have, have noticed, and this is just a generality, it's not a rule, but that men are often focused in on, I'll fix your problems. And women are often focused in on, I will fix you. Mm. Right. So like, I'll fix your, I'll fix your behaviors. Yes. And that's, that seems to be the intersection where a lot of relationships clash, where a guy's like, oh, you have problems. Let me fix those problems. Right. How you're feeling stuff with your mom, stuff at work, stuff with your business. And then what women often focus in on is a man's internal landscape, right? Like his behaviors, his choices, you know, how he's, how he's feeling, et cetera. Like I remember getting, I got a question that same Q and A the other day, and it was a woman. She said, "I've been with my husband for a while. I love him. He's an exceptional man with a big heart, but he's resistant to doing the inner work hmm. or doing the doing the deep work." And I was like, "Well, if he's an exceptional man with a big heart, what's the problem? Like, you're exactly. actually not telling me what the you're you're actually telling me that that he's a great guy, yeah, and that he's like good, <laughs> yeah, but but he's not doing the deep work." I was like, "I was like, what's the issue here? <laughs> you know, like, okay. what are you actually saying?" I have so much to say about that. But first, don't let me forget. Yes, you're absolutely right. Men like to fix the problems. Women like to fix the person, the character traits. So there's a couple of things the way that I see it, which is I think that men derive a lot of their comfort and happiness knowing because they believe that they are responsible for their partner's happiness. So if there's a problem, they're going to fix it. And then they're going to put a smile back on their partner's face And then as soon as they say the smile, their nervous system relaxes and they're like, I did good. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing in and of itself, in and of itself. But it's when it becomes, well, maybe they don't want their problems to be fixed. Maybe what fixes their problems is a big giant hug, you know, and I think that, um, and men like to apply their logic to things and they see the solution. And it's also a part of how their brain works, right? The brain works somewhat differently. So yes, so that's definitely what happens. And um, they try to just make the broken bird just kind of have their wings and fly again. For women, I think that there's a couple of things that go into play. One is I need you to be strong And if you're not strong, I feel insecure with you. So let me control what's going on for you internally so that you can actually become, let's just say in this instance, is the man who I need you to be. So that's one thing. I've done that. Then there's the, call it a nurturing instinct, call it a, um, again, this need to heal or to be sort of like, the inspiration for the change. That's a very big narrative for women, which is Mm. I need to be chosen. And so let me find the person who is most likely not going to choose me, AKA emotionally unavailable or fucked up in some way and can't, you know, whatever, can't be in a relationship or simply a great person, but just not that into you in that way. 
doesn't feel that strong connection to you. And she will do anything to, to be chosen. And that's old stuff. That's old, <laughs> old, old stuff. And so to go back to what was it, the, the choosing, I think that um, it's so important to f- a couple of things. One is to be aware of what your pattern is and then to choose different kinds of partners. That's number one. So you might have to start cho- like start dating people who are not necessarily your type. And if that's very confronting to you, then you might have to look into why you struggle to receive love, what scares you about true emotional intimacy, what scares you about not playing the role that you have always played, because that's a big source of where a person derives their sense of importance and significance. And so all of a sudden they're in a relationship and it's like, you know, we're a relationship should be about love and connection and growth, but a lot of people seek out relationships to feel more important and to feel more relevant and to feel more significant. It's like the ego is driving the ship. So you have to start choosing better partners based on knowing what your pattern is and also recognizing that you choose. This isn't about trying to be chosen by someone you choose. And then you know what? It sucks to be rejected, but sometimes that's just a part of life. And there are going to be people that your ego is going to convince you that that is the person for you. You want them. You're attracted to them. You've projected a childhood fantasy onto them. They are the one. And so by them liking you, you're all of a sudden validated. And then with their, if they're not liking you, that is like killing the ego. And we have to, just to keep it on on, theme, on brand today, we have to get over it. There are going to be people who are not going to feel the same way about you back. But I really believe one thing to be true. Anyone who is not feeling you, who's just not feeling it with you, who's not into you, who's not choosing you, they really truly are not for you. And even though you've convinced yourself that they are the quote unquote one, that part of you that's convinced you that they are the one is deluded and is all ego because there's just, they're just not for you. Well, it's coming from a place of, can you, if you choose me, then my lack of self-worth or my insecurity, it'll prove that wrong, but it never does. Right. That's the, that's the illusion of. Well, I, I mean, I call it. Many people, I think, have called it one-itis, right? That there's like there's one perfect person, and I can just find that perfect person. And then when you do find that perfect person, it's always a shit show, you know, mm-hmm. because because all of your insecurities and all the fears and all the lack of self worth and the self doubt just all of a sudden blurks and kind of gets like puked onto them and into the relationship. Yeah. And <laughs> which is a very uh, visual way, of putting it. <laughs> but you know, it, it kind of comes out and all of a sudden it's like, well, I need you to choose me. You have to be the one in order to affirm who I am in order to affirm that I'm worthy and that yeah. I'm good enough and that I have value and all these other things. And it, it pressurizes the system and then it just falls apart. Yes. Right. And so I'm with you 100%. I think that we have this very, like modern relationships have been, I I call it Disneyfied, right? Like they've been, there's been this like Disneyfication 
of modern relationship to such a degree where many people have this like very subtle form of brainwashing of what a mm-hmm. what a relationship should look like and then when a real relationship comes along and is actually there it's very it's like missing out on this sort of whimsical you know quality that that's been sold in Disney where you like you drop a shoe and somebody picks it up and like all this other nonsense yes, right exactly. so but real relationships are gritty sometimes and they're raw and they're real as fuck and they are going to bring the parts of yourself that you least like to the forefront and the other person you know it's like i think this is why i really liked carl jung's work is that like he he says something along the lines of a woman will always bring out the parts of a man that he least knows a woman will always evoke a man's shadow and in that way, he's sort of saying like relationships are going to bring out your insecurities and your fears yes. and they'll be projected onto their person and, and that, that they manifest so that we can actually work on them, you know, so that we can actually integrate them and we can be with them and we can become more whole and that relationships are the vehicle that we can do that. Yes. But if, if how we're looking at a relationship is that it's going to be so the solution to our fears, problems, and insecurities and anxieties, like, man, you're in for a rude you're awakening. In, you're in for um, a rude awakening. Yes. But absolutely. I've been there too. I've yeah. been there too. I've totally been that person that's like, she's the one and she's on this pedestal. And mm-hmm. oh man, it's like, what a disaster. It's a disaster. So, yeah. This is why self-awareness is a relationship superpower. Because mm-hmm. when you can have the self-awareness of like, oh, then I'm now I'm doing this thing right now. Or, oh, this is bringing up something really uncomfortable for me right now. Like I need to be looking at this. Like that's where like the quote unquote doing the work is so valuable so that you can be self-reflective in those moments when you want to be reactive. And that's what's really important. And that's what separates functional people versus dysfunctional people in relationships is really building that level of self-awareness. I mean, you know, we'll still get reactive, but to be able to, to look within is so very important. One thing that I also wanted to mention, just going back to women in particular, this need to be chosen and whatnot, I think it's important to note that part of that is also the societal pressure that women that is placed on women to look a certain way in order to be considered beautiful. And so a lot of women will question their, and men do this too, by the way, but I think it's a little bit heavier on women, but again, it's, it's heavy on men too, but women will place their value in the palms of the hand of someone who they're interested in and they barely even know and then feel so incredibly worthless if they're not chosen because they're not just questioning their value, they're questioning their breasts, they're questioning their hips, they're questioning their tummy, they're questioning their nose, they're questioning their skin, they're questioning their hair. They're comparing themselves to whatever, the woman on the billboard, and I don't look like that. So there's that too. And so I just wanted to put that out there because there's a lot of influence out there and there's a lot of conditioning and there's never just one thing. But yeah, relationships, I mean, I used to think, you know, you get married and then all your problems go away. And I tell people, (laughs) your problems get magnified with marriage. Like marriage does not actually give you like real certainty. I mean, I understand like, cause you know, a lot of women will be like, I want a ring, you know, like I want to get married. I want that commitment. 
And I get that to a degree. There is this, there is this sort of commitment that goes into it, but it's not a guarantee because it's really easy to get a divorce. It's really easy to get separated. And I think that with relationships today, there's too much, like the back door is open too much. Like it's too easy to escape. And there's a, there's a very childish joke in there somewhere. Yes, there is. Exactly. <laughs> there is a very childish joke. Exactly. I'm and, like my 15 year old self just came online and was like, oh, <laughs> I got a good joke there. No, no, it's hilarious. Easy there, bud. That's hilarious. You know, but people aren't willing to really put in, I mean, and look, there are some people who I say like, get the hell out of this relationship as soon as possible. Right. There's always those cases, but more times than not, it's, are you like, okay, there's a, every couple has their own journey. And so there's a problem. Are you going to just say, this isn't working. You're not the one you're disappointing me. You're not changing or you're changing too much. Like we, we come in with all these rules instead of like checking ourselves and being like, what do I have to learn about what's going on right here? And I think that way too many people focus on what's wrong with their par- partner and they don't take enough time to self-reflect on what they could be doing differently in a relationship. Do you think that marriage is dying within our culture or still relevant? It looks like it's it's on its way. I don't, I look, there could be a resurgence and there probably likely will be. I mean, that's just sort of the way life goes, but a lot of people are not are doing like this life partnership thing. I know a lot of people having children with their partners without getting married. I think this is more than it's ever been before. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because they see that their parents are divorced and, you know, their friends' parents are divorced and the divorce rate is so high. And they think, well, what's the point? I mean, I think, you know, taxes could be a good point, but I mean, you know, you do, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, sort of a realist that way, but yeah, they think, you know, and I think it's also like a slight rebellion against the system. It's like, why do I have to get married to prove that we're together? You know, mm. do you see that too? It's Yeah, I do. I, you know, I, I did this little episode on my podcast called, is marriage worth it? And it was interesting to see how many men, because on my YouTube channel specifically, it's like 95% men. Mm. And because YouTube is just predominantly men, it's just a much higher user base of men. And it was interesting to see a lot of the comments on there of guys who are just out, like they are just, they're checked out, they're checked out of marriage, like they're not interested. Hmm. And I think one of the things, because obviously I'm married and I made that decision. And, and in the video, I talk about why I decided to get married because it was a big question me for, for a long time. And for a number of years, it was like, maybe I'm not made for monogamy. Maybe I'm not made for marriage. Maybe I'm not interested in that. And I think when I read through the questions, the, a lot of the men were if I could distill it down, we're basically saying like marriage isn't a good deal for men anymore. And I thought that was very fascinating. You know, that a lot of guys are like, this is not a good deal anymore. We're being told that we're not needed. We're not wanted. Mm. Um, there's the expectations of what a man needs to bring to the table are still the same. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe even more so divorce courts haven't altered with the fact that, you know, women are 42% of the breadwinners in America. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, 
you have this big sort of landscape. And I think women have their own. Oh, and, the, and I think the last thing is, you know, like 70 to 75% of divorces are initiated by women. And so for a lot of guys, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to put realistically my net worth, you know, if, if, if I'm worth anything on the table. And, and I'm going to enter into this commitment and this agreement, not knowing how it's going to go. But the likelihood is, is that if divorce happens, it's overwhelmingly not going to be my choice. Hmm. And then I think on, on women's side, and I'm curious to get your take on why less women are interested in marriage, because I think historically that's been, you know, it's, there's more of a push, I think, from, from women historically than, than there has been for men. But I think you could argue against that. I think for women, it's like, well, I have all this freedom now. And I don't need a man to, you know, go and work nine to five. And I don't need a man to provide. And I'm doing that. And, you know, and so I think the the reasoning for marriage, if you're not religious, if you're not getting married for religion, if you're not getting married for financial security or financial stability, then the reasons kind of dis- disappear, you know, for a lot of people where it's like, well, why would I enter into that contract? You know, so what are you seeing people say? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see the data on that because still the women who are in their 20s and 30s who come to me, they want to get married. The vast Mm. majority of them. Are there... Why though? Why do they want to get married? Because they want a family, Ah. first and foremost. They want a family and they want that commitment. But that being said... When I look around me and friends and stuff like that, I'm seeing more and more people not doing that. So I think that for sure, it's way more now than it ever was in the past, but there's still people who definitely want to get married. But for the ones who don't, yeah, I mean, look, I think that women becoming financially independent and a force within the the workforce has changed a lot has changed society, has mm-hmm. changed marriage. And so, whereas in the past, the traditional model would be heteronormatively, and even in, in, in some gay relationships, is I'm going to stay home and raise the children. And my partner, my husband, my spouse is going to provide. And obviously, that's, that model still exists in many households. But we live in a world, again, where women are making their own money, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's a good a, thing. It's, it's just, a great I think, thing. I think one of the interesting conundrums that happens, oh, here, we're going to go, we're going to get into this now, but uh-huh. I think one of the interesting conundrums that happens is that when you ask the average woman what she wants in a man, she still wants a man who either earns the same amount or more than her. Yes. That is predominant across the board. And so they're dating pool has shrunk exponentially, right? If you're a woman who's making 250K and your your dating preference is that you're dating a man that's over six feet tall and is making as much as you, if not more, like your dating pool is astronomically small. You know, you're you're looking at like 0.5% of the population all of a sudden. I know, it gets tricky. but, But so I think for a lot of guys, they're like, well, women's standards have... Not that they've gotten more strict. It's actually in some ways that they've relatively stayed the same. It's it's held on to this old version of like, well, men still need to be the providers. And it's like, but you're also a provider. Mm-hmm. So how does that function? So I think it's it's 
it's interesting because on I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's amazing that women are out there crushing it, making money, zero issues with it at all. Yeah. I think just for a lot of guys, it's challenging. And then I think for a lot of women, it's challenging because what they want, what a lot of successful women are looking for, and specifically, I think we're talking about a specific subset of women. Yes, What are. they're looking for is a very finite group of men that they're then dating we're all vying for. So how do you see that shaping the dating market? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I I see that, you know, women think that they're the only ones who are insecure in the dating market and and have the raw end of the stick. And I think that this is an Mm. important conversation because men and men think that they're the only ones. So let's just say (laughs) that everyone feels like they're they're really screwed and, and they don't feel like they're good enough. Let's, well, I'll get to the money in a side, but money aside, like, I really wish that well, I tell women, like, you don't have to be attractive to be incredibly sexy. So mm. you need to go for other things. Uh, you know, the six foot tall and has to look a certain way. You can have, like, he has to make, you know, over $300,000 a year. He's got to be six foot tall, more power to you. Good luck. You're going to be single. Like, good luck. Good luck with that. You could say, I want someone who's financially successful, but like, and I want him to be like, take care of himself and be clean and have a nice smile. But like his height is sort of irrelevant. And like, you know, there's certain criteria, but like, you know, he could be bald or whatever. You're going to have a much easier time. Mm. You're going to be a much easier time when you're like, I just want him to have like an amazing character, be a great dad and make good money. Okay. He's out there. But like, as soon as you're like putting like all that other stuff, Good luck to you. Good luck to you. Yeah. And so, and that's also, oh, that's also movies. That's, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey and all of that. So, are you saying that Jordan Grey isn't a real person? I mean, <laughs> mortified. How dare you? <laughs> but that was a very important book and movie, though. Because yes. I don't, yeah, I, don't I say even, why. How come? Well, because now we're really going to go on a tangent. Yeah, we're going in. Now, full disclosure, I didn't read the book, which is crazy because I'm sure the book was 10 times better than the movie, but I did see the movies. It gave you a window into the taboo erotic mind of a woman and her desire to be dominated in the bedroom, but not dominated in life. And it really, you know, the erotic and fantasy and all of that, which is so hard for so many people to talk about. So in that way, I think that that was actually very interesting and important for women in particular to kind of be able to, I don't know, be validated in that in a way, you know, Uh, that could be very intimidating for men who sleep with them, but it's still, it was spot on where it totally screwed women over is them thinking they could change a man. If I am just good enough, then what's his name? Jordan Gray? What was his name? I can't remember. I, I don't I don't remember if it's Jordan Definitely Gray. I don't or... know. <laughs> Mr. Gray. Yeah, then Mr. I, Gray, somebody I, Gray. Yeah. Then I can make the completely messed up, emotionally unavailable man who on the surface is very high up in the hierarchy. You know, he's handsome. He's rich. He's going to, you know totally like, you know, take you on his helicopter and this and that, I can change him and make him love me. And Mm. that really screwed over women. 
that gave a terrible, terrible message to women. So that's my little take on Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, I do think it's a conundrum. Women are making more money and then they are expecting men to make as much and even above. Yes, you are. Then you are. It's just a smaller pool. So you have to make some decisions, but that's really what it all boils down to. I'm just, I'm very curious because I want to follow this thread and I don't want to lose it, but how have you seen that alter relational dynamics? Because I, one of the things that I feel like I've been, I've talked about on this show a number of times, is like this shift within our society has happened so rapidly and quickly, but there's been very few conversations. Like I I hear very few people, like I don't know if I've ever heard Esther Perel talk about it or Terry Real, like anybody in this therapeutic space talking about the reality that there's a a power dynamic that has shifted relationally, shifted relationally. Yes. And so I'm curious to get your take on, you know, when women out earn their male partners, how does that alter the power dynamic or how does that alter the relational dynamic between the man and the woman? Are there certain ways to make that work? Are there certain challenges that emerge? Like, I think we should just have a discussion. Yeah. So, okay. This is interesting. So first of all, for the younger generations, the earlier millennials, the Gen Zers, there's different expectations now. There's going to be a lot more family systems where the women in, in a heteronormative construct where the women is going to be out earning the man and the, and they are going to be okay with that. The woman's going to be okay with that and the man is going to be okay with that. We're going to see more and more of that. How does it shift power dynamics? Well, if the man in that position feels confident enough and feels like he can emotionally support his woman, that he can be a great father. If he feels like he can be like, he can fix things around the house. He's going to, it's all good, but he has to be confident enough in himself to be able to be with a woman who out earns him. And I think that more and more men are going to be forced to get more comfortable with that. And I think that they are, I'm seeing it I'm seeing it all the time in the younger generations. I really am. People today are more looking for deep connections with the person that they're in a relationship with. They're looking for soul connections. And I think that, so as the tide is changing with women out earning men, so is the expectation of what a relationship is, is changing. Whereas where it used to be, these are the gender roles People are wanting more from their relationships than they have ever, their romantic relationships, than they have ever wanted before. They want the best friend. They want the lover. They want the this. They want the that. All in one person. They want the soulmate. And money is actually, I think, becoming less important or who like the the infrastructure of who's earning in the household is becoming less important then are you my best friend? Are you communicating? Can I rely on you for absolutely everything? Are we twin flames? See, that's the direction that I see it going in. And that has its own problems. That has its own problems because no one can be absolutely everything for you. Just can't. It seems like, I mean, I think for some people, you know, first off, the economy is so tumultuous and it's so much harder in 2023 to have the house and have the kids 
on one person's income. It's yes. just it, like logistically from a financial standpoint, it is exponentially harder. And so I think a lot of couples have gotten to a place where it's like, it doesn't matter who, like who's earning more because we just need to fucking get by and pay for the kids school and, you know, send That's them to, true. you know, send them to piano class and hockey and shit like that. It's like, it doesn't absolutely matter true. because we just need to be able to, to earn a living and, and get by. So I think that's a big part of it. I, I just want to come back to the power component because Oscar Wilde had this great quote. He said, everything in life is about sex, except for sex. Sex is about power. Hmm. And I've always liked that. Maybe that says something about me. You know, we could psychoanalyze that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about, you know, when I think for some men, the fear is, okay, I'm dating this beautiful woman. We get engaged, we get married, she earns more than me. Maybe he has the perception that she's more attractive than him or equally attractive to him. It seems like the power differential might, for that couple, feel off. Like I, I think that there's a, there is some challenge in the sense that the, the reality is that we like when we enter into a relationship with another person, there is a sense of what we're bringing to the table, what they're bringing to the table. And there is a kind of balance of power in every relationship. And so I'm curious to whether or not you think that the balance of power in relationships between men and women, because we're, we're talking about heterosexual yeah. relationships for the most part, is, is, going to, is going to be skewed or is skewed? Or do you think that that's a non sequitur because of some of the things that we've been talking about? No, it's here's the thing. Men, are, men have been taught that their value in a relationship is to provide. So if they are in a relationship where they don't actually have to provide, then where is their value? But I think that's also coming from women though, right? Like I think again, like statistically the data shows that women want men who have, absolutely, absolutely, you know, financial acquisition. So it's a, it's, it's not just like men have been taught that it's that women want that from us. Yes. And so it's, it's a bit of a controversial piece, I think for a lot of guys where it's like, well, you're telling me that you want me to out earn you but you make a million dollars. Right. Right. Exactly. Or you're telling me that you want me to, I want to out earn you, but I'm an electrician or I drive a garbage truck and I make a hundred grand or I make 75 grand. And so like, I think there is this very real contrast and th I think that's what I'm pointing to. So I mean, didn't mean to cut you off. No. Yeah. Well, the thing is we're still talking about a small percentage of people and that is, True. you know, we're talking about a small percentage of people. And for the women who are making, you know, the 500 to a million dollars and she wants someone who makes a lot of money, I get it, you know, and it's like, they're, they're swimming in a very, very different kind of pool. And that woman likely wants someone who is going to have their own thing going on, is going to be, be powerful in their own right, is going to be able to also like take care of her in some way. Yes, it's difficult. But here's the thing, what I see happening in term, and then I want to get back to the sex, the sex, this comment that you made, because <laughs> it's an interesting one. <laughs> I think that that's a small percentage. I, what I see is that what women want is a man who's going to completely have her back and be a strong emotional rock in the relationship where she can rely on him emotionally and she can also rely on him to take care of certain things and to take some things off of her plate. 
And I think that that's more what I see is going on. She might out earn him, but he at least is there for her. He takes care of her in other ways. Now, are there men who are going to be like, well, you know, I can't, I can't live up to that. I can't live up to the woman who's, you know, making a million dollars a year or $500,000 a year. Okay. Well then meet a woman who's not making that. This is just about really prioritizing what's most important to you and to go for people who really work for you, who not work for you literally, but who are right for you. <laughs> yeah. Date in your workplace. <laughs> Dare, date in the workplace, exactly. So I do, so I think that there, we're talking about a lot of different things here, but again, that percentage of the women who are making bank and they want you know their men to, to make a lot of bank and have all that, they're gonna have their own problems and they're going to have to make a decision about what is most important to them. And for, and that is what women are going to have to do. And ha, and I've been telling them they have to do as you become more successful, as you become more independent, as you become the CEO, CEO of your own company, what's really important to you in a partner, because you don't need someone to provide for you. And so, and if you're going to say, well, I need a multimillionaire because I'm almost doing that. That's when I would tell her, you need to change your priorities. And I do see it happening. She's now wanting someone who has purpose, who has work, who's into it, but like can give her the love, the attention, the validation, the emotional support, the soul connection. I'm telling you, the more that we are moving away from that power differential of the provider and the woman who wants the provider, what's happening now is that people are moving towards, I want a soulmate connection. And it's interesting. And that is why I devote a lot of my content. And and we've talked about this. It's like, well, okay, great that you're, you're not looking for that old construct, but better be careful because- a soulmate is really someone who's going to inspire in you, who's going to demand of you to step up in a way in your relationship that you have never had before. And so, you know, I think that we also have to watch all the narratives. A lot of people tell themselves stories. Oh, they're never going to want me because they're, you know, the women only want the man in the huge, I, I, you know, I got this question from this guy, you know, all women just want a man with a yacht and this and that. And I was like, no, they don't. No, they don't. Maybe the women that you are trying to date do, but then you're trying to date the wrong women Mm. because that's absolutely not true. Not all women are running around wanting a man with a yacht. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just the intersection between the two pieces that we were talking about, which is most men know that one of a woman's top priorities is and this is Dr. David Buss's work. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is cross-cultural and cross-religions yes. and cross-countries, right? That like most women are looking for a man that has resource acquisition potential, right? That he can go out and require resources, whether that's now or in the future, right? Whether that's social status or finances or a job or whatever it is. Because she wants and to I be think, protected. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, but I do think, I do think that it's a, you know, there's two pieces in terms of what we were talking about. One is like, yes, there's the women that are earning a ton of money and you know, there's their dating um, desires. 
But I do think that there's just a growing population, right? I think I'm pretty sure the stat is that 42% of American households, women are the primary breadwinner. Women are out earning their male counterparts in 42% of households. In, in so the United States or where? In the United States. Yeah. Yeah. In the US. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a, that's a massive population. That's, that's a big population, right? And it's, it's gone up from the seventies. I think in the seventies, it was like nine to 11%. Mm -hmm. And now we're at 42%. And you know, with the trends of less men going to college, right? By 2030, we're going to have two women graduating for every one man that, you know, puts them in certain career trajectories. You know, I think, I think it'll probably swing over 50% where in over 50% of American households, women will be out earning men probably within the next decade or so. That's just a guess. But, you know, I do think that it's an interesting conversation. I'm not saying that you know, there's specific outcomes. I think I've had, a, you know, quite a few men reach out over the years being like, oh, my wife out earns me, you know, four times or three times. And yeah, how do I still provide? How do I, you know, find a place? And it's like, well, you can, you can still lead, you can still provide, you can still protect, you can still do all these things that are core to what you want to contribute to a relationship and uh, maybe not be the primary earner like that's still possible i think what what is incorrect is like just putting so much emphasis on money mm -hmm. just like putting so much emphasis on beauty right mm -hmm. it's like when we just become myopic like that and our selection preferences go all the way down to like this one fucking area yes it, you know i think those are likely not the people that are you know tuning into this podcast and having these types of conversations so yeah. Well, I could just tell thoughts? you what I, what I witness in the thousands of women who I work with. And that is for the women who date men, they just want a man who has financial stability and that they don't care if he, he makes more money than her. This is the vast majority of them, not all of them. They want a man with financial stability, you know, and that I think is realistic because I think that's a realistic expectation. But here's another thing that's interesting. I mean, we could, this could, this topic, we, we could explore this for hours because men now are expecting financial stability from a woman. Mm -hmm. And in the past, it never used to be that it used to be, I want to provide, or I don't have that expectation, but it's going both ways. So I'm seeing a lot of men expecting women to work, to contribute financially and to have financial stability and more men are wanting women with purpose. Mm. That's what I'm Interesting. seeing too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot more men who are wanting women to contribute financially because I do think it's, you know, it's just statistically and financially, it's so much harder to yes. have the mortgage. You know, I mean, we don't need to go into the financial part of it. That's probably a different conversation, yeah. but because I've been reading a lot of the data on that front, you know, like for example, in the 1920s, a house was approximately 2.3 times the annual income of an individual. Mm -hmm. And now it's 9.4 times the average income of an individual. So just purchasing a house is exponentially more harder mm -hmm. for the average American to do. And so the cost of living is just much higher. And so I think most people, in order to have a family and have kids, like it's almost a necessity that both people are are working. Um, do you have a hard stop in two minutes or do you have like... Oh, no, I can go till um, 11.45. So we're having this interesting dialogue, right? It's I think it's a, this is a conversation that I think more people need to have. 
because I, I know a lot of couples who actually are in this situation, right, where the where she out earns him and the, they never talk about money and they never talk about what it's like. And so I'm curious, what other thoughts do you have on this notion of women out earning men and then dating potential? Okay. So first, I just want to focus on the women who are making a great living, who are financially stable and thriving and making good money. And let's say they're single. And like you said, even though they don't need a partner, let's say this is the woman who dates a man, even though she does, since that's what we're focusing on is these new gender roles, so to speak, even though she does not need a man to support her financially, she still wants a man to out earn her. And she could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not more. Mm. That's a problem. And it's a problem because I would, well, first of all, I would encourage that woman to ask herself, why? Why does she want that? So I think one of the, the, the cultural norms and conditioning that women have been trying for so long to break through is that a man is not superior to her and that she can out, she can go out into the workforce and be as much of a force in the workforce as any man can be. So then why would you, why is it so important to you to have a man who out earns you? Like, what is it about that, that you, that you need that? In other words, why do you associate how much money he makes with his power? And why do you need him to be more powerful than you? And I, this is very important because it's one thing to want someone who has purpose, who has direction, who has passion, who, ha- who even has financial stability. But if he has to out-earn you, even though you're doing really well, I think that is a very, very old, conditioned belief system that that woman, it would behoove her to challenge that. Because first of all, you're going to make the dating pool so small. But second of all, why do you need that? And so that would be something that I would encourage women to ask themselves. Why, in fact, do you need that? Why isn't it enough that the man that you want is driven and powerful in his own right? Why does his bank account, when you don't need his bank account, Why is that important? And I think that a lot of women will associate a man's bank account with his level of drive, but that's also another fallacy. It's a fallacy. Exactly. It's not true. Um, Someone who makes less money than you and you're making good money, that's very different than someone who's sitting on his couch all day long, smoking weed and playing video games or watching porn and having no passion. I mean, it's a vast difference. And so I think that it's important that people in general go for qualities in another person when you don't need the financial support that are more important, like character, like passion, like purpose, because things are changing. The the concept of the trophy wife, for example, It doesn't really exist anymore because most men are actually not looking for a dumb bimbo who looks good on his arm. They actually want a woman who's got purpose too, 
And that purpose could be to raise children. It's not, it doesn't have, it's not wrapped up so much in money and achievement, but we are living in a time right now that, that what we're most attracted to are people who do have a sense of direction and purpose and passion. Even if that passion is painting or drawing, just something that makes the person feel connected to something deeper and more purposeful and larger than themselves. And so, like I said, if you are needing, when you don't actually need that financial support and you are want, but, but you're still saying to yourself, yeah, well, you better make more money than me. You better ask yourself that question as to why, because I think it perpetuates something that, that women actually, if they thought clearly about, don't want to perpetuate, which is that somehow the man has got to be superior to me. He's got to, he's got to be better than me in some way. He has to be more skilled than me in some way. And then that's what's the turn on for me. But isn't that, I mean, it's interesting because there's so many, there's so many threads that I want to pull on this and I want to be mindful of our time on this front, but it's what's fascinating to me is on one hand, you know, we had a conversation around dominance right? That women are attracted generally to men who are going to be somewhat dominant in a healthy way, right? In a respectful way. And that that can be from a sexual standpoint, quite attractive. And then on the other side, we also talk about- But not at all, but not at all, but only from a sexual standpoint. It's not, women are not generally attracted to men who are dominant. But what's, what are the indicators that a man is going to be sexually dominant, right? Like, I mean, I think that there's outward displays of a man's dominance that show up in his day-to-day life, in his character, in the way that he speaks and carries himself and in what he does. And so I think there's, there's two things that I could see. And you tell me, I'm not a woman. I have no idea what this experience is like. So I'm curious to get your perspective, but it seems like there's two pieces that are contrary or not contrary, but like maybe feeding into this I make a lot of money, but I still want a man to make more than me. One is the like security and safety side of things. And the other one is this attraction point to more, to men who are more dominant. So where do, where do you see safety and security playing into this conversation? And where do you see dominance playing into this conversation? How does that map? Why do you need a man to make more money than you if you're making good money for safety and security? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I think, I think part of I it think is it's that, conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. It, it certainly might be conditioning. And would you say that that conditioning has a net negative impact on women? Yes. Because the thing is, she shouldn't, it's, she shouldn't be narrowing her options based on how much money he makes. She should be narrowing her options based on his level of, of, of character and purpose in the world. Hmm. regardless of how much he makes, if you're someone who can take care of yourself financially. So this idea is, what I'm trying to say, because this is something that I've had to confront in myself as well as someone who earns, but didn't used to, Hmm. you know, and so, and was raised with, you depend on a man to take care of you financially. And that's sort of, that's one of his roles in your life. And, uh, that works in certain households when you want to be the mom at home. And I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing that at all, you know, but it's incredibly empowering for a woman 
who's always thought that she had to depend on a man for her safety and security financially for her to start making her own money. Hmm. But then to then say, if she's making a lot of money, well, now I need a man who's even richer than me. What she's actually saying on unconscious level is that I need a man who's more powerful than me. Hmm. And I think that that has some implications there that are not that positive because that buys into an old line of thinking that somehow he is the only way that you're going to admire and respect him is if he has some superiority over you, as opposed to admiring and respecting because of how he interacts with the world. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think what, what arises for me is again in this this notion of like the dominance piece and i'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying i'm just i'm like i'm challenging and poking and you know doing yeah, all the it. things that that make these yeah. conversations engaging because i think one of the things that you know comes out of that is is it wrong is it bad to have a partner who is superior in some way, shape, or form. Like I think, uh, let me, maybe let me explain what I'm saying before, uh, you know, the audience comes at me. (laughs) (laughs) I think in our modern culture, this notion of men have some traits that they are more dominant, like physicality, right? Like there's just biologically, physically, men are stronger period in almost every category, right? And this has been proven time and time again. So there is a level of I don't, I don't think superiority is necessarily the right word there, but there is a level of, of dominance. There is a level of potency that shows up in that category. And that's a draw for a lot of women, right? For a lot of women, having a man that is strong physically, that's able to defend, that's able to, you know, that takes care of himself. That is an indicator of, oh, there's a certain level of proficiency. And so too are, you know, women own and possess and, and have different elements where they are superior to men that I think creates part of the attraction and part of the appeal. You know, I think that is a part of it, that we each individually have our own elements where there is a, a desire, a connection, a, a sort of flourishing that can come out of, oh, you're really gifted in this area. You, you possess something that I don't naturally, and I love that, and I'm drawn to it, I'm allured by it. Absolutely. And there's no question that women are, um, heterosexual women primarily are attracted to strength. But why does that have to come in the form of their bank account when you are taking care of that for yourself anyway? Hmm. The problem is not, it's not about how much money he makes or how little money he makes. What we're talking about is a woman who has found a way to take care of herself financially and to be able to say, I don't need a man to take care of me financially. I don't need him. But yet I still want a man who makes even more money than me. What is, and I just want to encourage her to do a little self-reflection. What is that really all about? Hmm. What is that really all about? As in, it could be an insecurity, as in it could be a fear. Like what, what do you think is contributing to that? Again, this idea of I need a man to be superior to me in some way. Somehow it's like there's this double-edged sword of like, 
or this two ways of looking at it. It's like, I want to be a woman who's out in the workforce and doesn't need a man. But yet, like somehow he's got to prove to me, like he's got to prove to me that somehow he's even better than me. Mm. And I think that that it's almost like modern feminism sort of battling sort of old, old thinking of women that we've been conditioned to believe, which is that we are not as capable. Of course, we're not talking physically, but not as capable as men. And so if you're attracted to strength, the strength has to come in strength of character, strength Mm -hmm. of body, strength of, of mind, strength of passion. Lots of men are making, or lots of people make a lot of money and they're weak as hell. Facts. Yep. Facts. Mm -hmm. So it's just something that I just think it's worth the contemplation. How much of that is your conditioning versus this is just what I'm attracted to? I think that we really, because also it really would limit that particular woman's dating pool. And again, like we like we've discussed before, there's plenty of men making a lot of money who have very, very weak, low character. So it's also about understanding where your priorities lie. And if you don't need that financial security, why then are you then demanding that they make more money than you? Like it's we're not even talking about as much or making good money or close enough. We're talking about the desire to have them make even more than you. I think that's something, I think that's old conditioning that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, there's a shifting of priorities and there's a shifting. I think what's interesting in this conversation for me is that when I pull back from it, it's how do we rely on each other within relationship? And I think what it almost sounds like we're talking about in some ways is this dance around reliance versus dependency. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I can rely on you if you, you know, you make a good living, right? If, if you're making just as much or you're making a little bit less, it's like, there's a reliance there. But if there's a dependency, it sounds like that's what you're sort of pointing at is that we maybe can stay away from dependencies. Dependencies are, are part of the issue or like, does that relate to what you're saying? You know, I think at the end of the day, look, I know lots of women who who have more money, whether it's family money or they're earning than their male partners and they're very happy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that all I'm saying is that a woman, if she is an earner and yet she still wants him to make more money than her, I think that there is an association with his making money and his power. And I think there has to be a shift to that thinking and a shift to just old conditioning. And I think that it would behoove that particular woman to get more comfortable and open up her mind to potentially being with someone who may make less money than her, but is like still a powerhouse Mm. in his own right. She needs to get more comfortable with that. Yeah, it's it's like broadening. I think the big piece, uh, one of the things that I have that I struggle with in certain dating advice or in the red pill stuff or you know certain even certain elements of feminism, it's like it becomes very myopic and very one dimensional, right? If if your primary indicator of a man's sense of power and potency and strength is his bank account, 
and you ignore the rest of who that individual is, you're missing out. Like you're just missing on, you're taking one data point and allocating that one data point for his sense of power and potency, just like the quality of a woman. If it's, if you're distilling it down to, is she a 10, right? It's just Mm -hmm. purely her beauty. And Mm -hmm. that's all that you're looking for. Then you're missing out on a huge part of who that person is and what you might want and what you might need. So I think this is, this is great. I really appreciate that insight and just being able to like also challenge women in that way to say like, Hey, have a look at this part. You know, if this is coming up, and you think that you need that, like, why is it, you know, why, why is that exactly that you think that you need that? Anything else you want to say before we continue on? No, I would say that that's really just about it. And that, you know, like I said, everybody wants to be with someone who has some sort of purpose or power. Like I don't, I, the shift that I'm seeing is that men don't just want like the pretty arm candy anymore. They actually want someone who is very powerful in her own right too. And I think that, you know, it goes well beyond someone's bank account, well beyond Mm -hmm. someone's bank account. Love it. Okay. I want to circle back on the sex and power Mm -hmm. because it sounds like you had something to to toss in there. So let's let's go down this path because I've talked about this on the show before. I ran a poll on my Instagram and found that more women want men to be dominant sexually in the bedroom than men want to be dominant sexually in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And it was a very interesting sort of discourse that came out. But what do you think is the intersection between power and sex? Is, is it important? Is it relevant? What's your perspective on what you see women wanting and asking for? I mean, it's all about power. It's all about um, the moment you are the turn on to the other person, you, you're in a position of power. And power is the biggest aphrodisiac for men and women. So I think that whenever we feel like we are seductive, when we can seduce someone, when we are so attractive and beautiful and sexy in that moment that the other person, you know, we become the focal point of that person, we have the power. So sex is always about power in many different ways. It's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Power in itself is not bad. It's the misuse of power that becomes an issue. And even if a woman prefers to be, let's say, respectfully dominated, you know, con- you know, dominated with consent in the bedroom, she could still have all the power mm-hmm. because as long as she feels like she's the turn on, she feels powerful. And that is why you'll see in a lot of relationships where a woman is in a relationship, whether it's even with a man or, or a woman, where she's in a relationship with someone where she feels pretty much all the time powerless. She's a maybe emotionally abused, maybe even physically abused. She's ignored a lot. She's, you know, maybe in love with an addict and, you know, and it's just very toxic and dysfunctional. Usually when she feels most powerful is in the bedroom. It's those moments where she's able to see this partner who's usually very rejecting of her be most vulnerable around her, most loving of her, most enslaved, if we will, by her sexuality and beauty. That's when she feels powerful, but that's not love, but it becomes the thing the glue that keeps her stuck to this person, even though it's incredibly 
dysfunctional and toxic in every other way are those moments. And that is the power of sex and the power dynamics of sex and the influence that it has on a relationship. It will keep people who shouldn't be together together because of that dynamic. So where does healthy, what do we want to call it, power or potency show up in a relationship sexually? Well, I think that it has a lot to do with what's happening when you're not having sex. So you don't have the manipulation when you're not having sex. And then you're using sex as a way to, I don't know, get back at the person, reclaim your power in the relationship. If you feel very, if you feel very powerless in your relationship, but in the bedroom is where you feel very powerful. Even if you're being dominated, you're the turn on then you will use sex and sexuality to try to even out the score and even out the power dynamics within the relationship. So it has to do with what's happening, not in the bedroom. If you have a relationship that's filled with love and connection and respect, and then you go into like this role playing or this fun stuff in the bedroom, it's fine because you're Mm -hmm. not trying to leverage something You're not trying to leverage sex to regain your power in the relationship because you feel so powerless in it. Yeah. I think the respect piece is a huge, huge part of it. Like I think if you're, when there's respect between two people in a relationship, then the exploration of power dynamics, dominance, submission, role plays, you know, fantasies, where you have sex, those types of things it becomes a very different piece. It becomes a very yes. different experience, right? Because there's something that, you know, I, I think sex is oftentimes the place where the rest of our psychological, like where all of our psychological, emotional, and relational pieces sort of get to play and explore and get expressed in some capacity. And if we allow it, if that's, if that's, or it gets all triggered. Yeah. Yeah. Or it gets all triggered, right? It all Mm -hmm. sort of like comes up in and around sex. But I think that when there's respect between the two people, then exploring those power dynamics in some capacity, whether it's through a role play or one person tying the other person up, et cetera, that becomes a much more aligned expression of love in the relationship. versus when there isn't respect or, you know, power is being used as a, you know, type of control, then it's not so much an expression of love and connection or creating connection. It's like reinforcing the superiority, inferiority dynamic between the two people. Yes. Is that that what you agree with? Yes. Basically safety and trust are the foundation Mm -hmm. of a relationship. And without safety and trust, you know, because you're saying respect, I agree, but it's also trust. You have to trust that this that you can be vulnerable with this person. So these relationships that don't have foundation, the foundation being safety and trust and respect is thrown in there too. Sex becomes the weapon in many ways in that sort of dynamic. It can. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, this this could open up a whole other can of worms, which oh, I think yes. we should probably save for conversation <laughs> Another number time. two. It's a big topic. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very big topic. But where can people find your work? I just want to say, before we sort of like wrap up, that I really enjoyed our conversation. I feel like we traversed 
a whole bunch of terrain, you know, like <laughs> we really <laughs> we did. Kinda, we really <laughs> did. And I think, I think we actually went quite deep in some of those areas, you know, especially the conversation around the shifting dynamics between men and women in relationships when it comes to finances and when it comes to dating and selection preferences. I think it's a very important conversation. So I'm glad that we went down there. Yeah. So thank you for everything. This is very fun. I enjoyed this. I think everyone tuning in is, you know, will have enjoyed this. Where can people learn more about you and anything that you want people to know about as they sort of check out you and your work? Yeah. I mean, basically you need to know the spelling of my first and last name because I got JillianTarecki.com, Instagram at JillianTarecki, you know, on Twitter, on TikTok, on Threads. So everyone's social media, just know my first and last name. If people want courses, I have a really amazing membership for women called The Conscious Woman. So that's all through my site, JillianTarecki.com. And yeah, that's where to find me. Oh, and I forgot my podcast, Jillian on Love. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have been on and it was a blast. Yes, we had, a, we had exactly. an amazing conversation. Um, yeah. So we'll have links to all that in the show notes. And for everyone that's out there, don't forget to man it forward. This might be something that you want to listen to with a friend, you know, have a conversation about it or listen to with your partner and have a conversation about it. Uh, you know, what you loved, what you agreed with, what you disagreed with. I, th- I find sort of chewing the fat on these types of conversations can help totally. us really understand the people in our life better. So uh, don't forget to share the episode and leave a review wherever you are listening to us. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 